welcome to the Canadian Nutrition Society podcast, Nutrition Conversations, a podcast dedicated to exploring the latest research in nutrition and health in Canada. In each episode, we invite expert guests to share their insight and knowledge on a wide range of topics from dietary patterns to sports nutrition, food insecurity, and food sustainability. Whether you're looking to improve your own health and wellness or simply stay up to date on the latest developments in the field of nutrition, we hope you'll join us on this journey to better understand the role food plays in our lives. Please note that the views expressed by speakers in CNS podcasts are those of the speaker and not necessarily of CNS. Sitting in the host chair in this episode is guest moderator Dr. David Ma professor at the University of Guelph, who will be talking to Dr. Richard Basnett on episode 10 of Nutrition Conversations on the role of DHA in the developing brain and its impact across the rest of our lifespan and life stages. This podcast is supported by Reckitt Me Johnson Nutrition. Hello, Nutrition Conversations listeners. Welcome to today's podcast on Nurturing Young Minds and Beyond, the Omega-3 Connection. Did you know that about half the brain is composed of lipids and approximately a tenth is omega-3 fatty acid, docosahexaenoic acid, or also known as DHA? This tells us that omega-3 fatty acids and DHA must have an important role to play in the function and part, and part of a healthy brain and diet. So intuitively, a healthy brain is important for intelligence and ability to do work. An important question is how do we support a healthy brain in early life and continue supporting a healthy brain into our later years? To answer these questions on this podcast is my colleague, Dr. Richard Bazinet. Dr. Richard Bazinet is a professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto, Acting Department Chair and Canada Research Chair in Brain Lipid Metabolism. Dr. Bazinet and his team are currently taking a kinetic and biochemical approach to studying the mechanisms by which dietary polyunsaturated fatty acids regulate the metabolism of rachidonic and docosahexaenoic acids within brain phospholipids. He is, a, he is also a former president of the International Society for the Study of Fatty Acids and Lipids. And uh, I, I should also introduce myself. Uh, I'm David Ma, Dr. David Ma from the University of Guelph in the Department of Human Health and Nutritional Sciences. And so please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Richard Baznet to episode 10 of Nutrition Conversations. Thanks, David. It's it's a pleasure to be here. I, I'm enjoying the podcast so far, listening to the other guests. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, these podcasts are, have been extremely popular and, and hoping to build on the successes to date. Uh, for our listeners, uh, this podcast builds on the webinar by Drs. Ken Stark and Susan Carlson, speaking on the biological role of omega-3s and mechanisms in the preterm infant. So, uh, my first question for you, uh, Richard, is uh, so building on uh, the previous work on preterm infants and today a, a conversation on the on what happens afterwards. Uh, let's start with a bit of a background. So what uh, what are omega threes? Uh, why are they important? And uh, uh, what do we know about the uh, levels of, of omega threes for term infant as compo- as compared to preterm infants, as we heard from Dr. Stark and Carlson? Yeah, so omega-3 is just one of the types of fat, right? So, you know, people are probably all very well of saturated fats, uh, and we think of those in terms of butter, 
and then you've got monounsaturated fats and a major source of that being something like olive oil. And then when we get into the polyunsaturated fats, you, you kind of have two branches. You've got the omega-6 side and the omega-3 side. And you introduced DHA as an acronym for me, so I don't have to redo that. But DHA and some of the others are, are just the omega-3 fats. They're famous for a couple reasons. Their dietary sources are interesting. Most of what we call the longer chain omega-3s, which would include one called EPA and DHA, are found in fish, or at least that's kind of the normal source. But there's also a what we call a plant precursor, a little bit of a misleading term because it's in other things, but it's famous for being in plants. And that's alpha-linolenic acid. And, and people often don't hear the enic at the end there. Uh, and that's kind of an 18-carbon precursor. And, you know, our liver has some ability to convert that down to a 20-carbon product, EPA, and eventually to, to DHA. Uh, why do we care about them in terms of the brain? Well, the, the brain is almost full of them. You know, you made a comment, and people probably don't realize this, that your brain's almost as fat as your body fat. It, it's about 50% fat. Your body fat's probably a little more than 50%, but there's still a lot of protein and water in there. Um, and the, the neat thing about the brain fat is unlike your body fat, which is a triglyceride or triacylglyceride, uh, in the brain it's predominantly phospholipids. And one fatty acid is, is quite high levels uh, in those phospholipids, and that's DHA, which you correctly said makes up about 10% of the brain phospholipids. And so how does it get there and what is it doing there are, are big questions in our field. Great. Thank you for that. Um, could you expand a little bit more about um, how, uh, uh, how, how does it get there in, in, in terms of brain accretion and, and uh, how does that differ between preterm versus term infants? Sure. And I missed that. You, you'd asked me that. It was a three-part question. I can't <laughs> remember, couldn't remember the third part, right? Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's, I'll start off with the, 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 the kind of the big picture and then we'll zoom in on some of the details. Brain growth starts in utero. It starts to take off, you know, roughly around the third trimester. And you get a lot of DHA accretion as with the growing brain in the third trimester. <clears throat> that continues out where there's a little debate on exactly when it ends. You know, I like to say around two years of age. Maybe it doesn't end, but it definitely slows down uh, a lot after that. The term infant, you know, that goes on. Uh, they have that in utero accretion um, during, you know, until birth, uh, and then, you know, either through mother's milk or or formula or supplemental feeds, they get some of it later on. The other big thing about the term infant is they're nice pudgy little things, right? They've got a beautiful little store of body fat on them, and that's important because that body fat has about a gram of DHA in it, okay? And so up to two years of age. Uh, the infant's going to go from about zero to three or four grams of DHA in their brain. And if they're born a healthy term infant, they've got a gram stored in their adipose, which I think can eventually get to the brain. We'll come back to that. Where the challenge comes in is the premature infant, or, you know, a definitely bigger challenge, because they lack that last little bit of in utero exposure where mom's blood can essentially supply them with the DHA. Uh, then they're born, and sure, they can get it from milk, but the other thing you can it's quite remarkable about a preterm infant is they're quite thin. So they also don't have that rainy day adipose store, and they don't have that gram of DHA to get into the brain. So they seem even more vulnerable 
uh, in terms of getting uh, DHA. Somewhere after two years of age, this kind of levels off and plateaus out. But it's not over because in adults, so, you know, our brains aren't growing anymore, but we have turnover, right? We're, we're cells, you know, just a little different in the brain than other tissues, but they're, they're, the molecules are leaving the, the brain and coming back in and being replaced. And there's a sort of replacement rate uh, for that. And then the numbers are kind of fun. Uh, your old PhD advisor was one of the first to estimate these. And it was a pretty simple calculation. It was, you know, roughly saying if, if at two years of age we have, uh, we have four grams, divide that by time, uh, how much is it per day? And, you know, they come up and I'll, I'll keep it simple. I'll say about four milligrams a day. In adults, we no longer have the accretion, but the uptake rate happens to be about four milligrams a day. So, you know, I'm, I'm throwing estimates to keep the numbers a little more simple here. But, but the brain seems to need to grow about four milligrams a day and in adults to replace it about four milligrams a day. And there's probably a replacement in, in the infants that makes it tricky. What's the hard question is <clears throat> how much do you need to eat to make sure your brain gets that four milligrams because there are other organs. So that, that's a big question and maybe we can come back to it. The mechanisms why, by which DHA um, get into the brain are a little controversial, but, the, but there's kind of two of them. And I'll tell you my side of the story because none of my people who disagree with me are on this podcast. So DHA can cross the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain from the plasma as what we call a free fatty acid. Some people call it a NIFA or an unesterified fatty acid, the same thing. And we've been able to calculate the rates by which that crosses the brain. It seems to be a pretty good way to supply the brain with DHA. There's a newer mechanism that's evolved in the past 10 years, and that's DHA as a lysophospholipid. And it looks like there's a transporter for that that can help it get across. And in our hands, the free fatty acid, at least in adult models, uh, the uptake rate's about 10 times higher than the lyso. I think, you know, whether that changes in disease or in development hasn't been asked yet. And those are, those are some fair questions. And then, so the, the big question here is, you know, it comes in the diet using the form of triglycerides. There's a lot of digestion that happens. It goes to the liver, it goes to the adipose, it goes to the blood. One of the things I love about the adipose is that the adipose releases free fatty acids. And I told you earlier, you know, the term infant has a, a gram of DHA in there. And in theory, that DHA could get released in the free form, which is readily available for the brain. Awesome. Well, well thanks for uh, sharing perspectives about um, um, uh, the levels of DHA that uh, get in the brain, how it gets there mm -hmm. and, and uh, touching on on uh, uh, on requirements and also turnover, uh, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and 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 uh, talk about um, uh, the role of uh, mom and dad and uh, and uh, and their role in uh, this important stage of development. So, just curious about your thoughts on what is the role of omega threes in fertility before you know everything happens and and then uh, during pregnancy and lactation and some potential health consequences for mental health and in the postpartum yeah so i think there's there's a few fun things that are, are being explored right now in this area that we don't really know the answers to and maybe in a couple of years we'll figure it out but dha gets to high levels in a couple um, tissues or organs one being the brain uh quite famous 
the other being the retina, which we probably won't talk about too much, but it's very important for retinal development. And the other one is the tail of the sperm cell. It's actually quite high in there. And, you know, we don't know exactly why it is, but it appears to be important. So low DHA levels in sperm cells correlate with sperm dysfunction. And so I think we need to do a little bit of work there. Not everybody with sperm motility issues will benefit from DHA. But, but is that a chicken or egg? Uh, is there some opportunities for interventions there? And that's an emerging area, especially as, as these numbers are being reported about fertility rates decreasing in, in certain populations. Uh, so I think, you know, that's exciting and some people should explore it. We've done a little bit of this work. I don't know if you have, David, but we've been looking at some vegetarian and vegan populations uh, with some collaborators at the University of Chile, and they tend to have lower sperm DHA levels. And the question we've got, well, does that matter? You know, just because something's lower, it's not always worse, but, but, but we're interested in that and we're following that forward. The most exciting part, though, uh, has showed up really in the last couple of years. And this deals with um, gestational period. So, you know, infant goes in, uh, you know, um, starts developing, blah, blah, blah. We all know lots of steps, third trimester, fourth trimester. And it turns out that higher DHA status in the mother can lead to a little, uh, you know, a few more days, three, four, five, six more days in utero. And that's really interesting if you're at risk for prematurity, because if you can push that really vulnerable phase just a little bit further, it's a big advantage. And my colleagues in Australia have been doing a lot of this work. It started with some epidemiology in the Faroe Islands, but now there are a lot of clinical trials and the data is robust. This is one of the few things you can look at in these Cochrane meta-analyses where, you know, they score the quality of evidence and nutrition and, and you know how bad that can get beat up in some areas. But the, the quality of the evidence is generally quite high that if mother has a higher DHA status, um, that she can extend the gestational period for a few times, which, you know, could be a double-edged sword. You have to be careful. Some infants stay in a little too long, and, and that could be a risk factor. But it could be a very useful tool, and people are trying to push that forward for limiting premature births. So I think there's a role for both dad that, you know, we often don't think about in nutrition, uh, but clearly a role for mom uh, in the womb as well. Fantastic. Um, just to expand a little bit more about uh, mom, um, I, I'm, I believe that you've done a little bit of work on uh, the postpartum period in, in mothers. And I was wondering if you could comment on that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, the, the infant is kind of like a brain in a way. So one of the problems with studying brain DHA metabolism is there's a lot of homeostasis in the brain. You know, I think lots of tissues can suffer and send the DHA to the brain. Like the brain kind of gets priority, which is really neat. In a way, the infant is a bit parasitic, if I can use the term, or a bit like a brain in that it gets priority. So mom takes a lot of, um, you know, it'll take a lot of resources from the mother. Uh, through the through the milk and you know uh, through the umbilical cord and development, so if the mother status is questionable, um, the infant's still going to get it. It's kind of the idea, you know, to to some extent. So that puts the mother in a low uh, status. So the, the the next question is, well, are there any consequences to that? So a hypothesis is that mom is at risk for postpartum depression. You, you know, 
that's a thing with or without DHA status. And, and the question is, does the lower DHA status make that better or, you know, worse? Um, and there's been some work in there and it's, you know, it's a bit tricky. Most of the studies are null. Uh, the largest study to date uh, was done out of Australia. It had several hundred mothers at risk for postpartum depression. And don't quote me on this, but it got one of these p-values that we always liked above bug PhD students with. I think it was 0 0.07. Uh, and that DHA did not statistically improve mother's risk at developing postpartum depression because the p-value was 0 0.07. And so should we redo that study with a larger sample size uh, to see if we can cross the statistical significance and then change the way we use our wording around that? Maybe. The authors would point out, though, is, you know, they're adequately powered to test it. And if there is an effect of DHA supplementation, it's probably a small effect on postpartum risks. Okay. Th thanks for explaining. And uh, I, I would say that, uh, or, or add a uh, comment further, that. Uh, we do need a bit more DHA or omega-3s in our diet regardless. So uh, there's no, uh, uh, probably no harm in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in being aware of mom's needs in terms of omega-3s in addition to uh, uh, the offspring. Yeah, David, great point. I, I just want to expand on that a little bit because uh, I kind of separate randomized controlled trials of fish oil supplements in my head with food intakes. And, and you raise a good point. The observational literature, sometimes called the epidemiology, is pretty clear on most of these issues, right? Higher intakes are associated with better outcomes. They're associated with better uh, neurological development in the kids. There are several meta-analyses, systematic reviews on that. Clear cut. Uh, so I agree with you. Food sources, food intakes that we see in the population work it well. But for whatever reason, the randomized controlled trials where we try and push things a little bit further in the context of a study, you know, then the answer is not as clear. It's it's always tricky with the RCTs, that's for sure. Yes, yes. Um, just a comment, an observation that there, there's a lot of work and research about omega-3s and DHA in, in pregnancy and, and fetal development, and then also in, in adulthood. Uh, it looks like there's a bit of, you know, uh, scarcity of data in, in in, uh, in children between years of two and 12 or older adolescents up to 18. Um, I was just curious about your, your thoughts on the dietary needs of omega-3s and DHA in, in this population. Should we be concerned? Yeah, uh, yes, I think we should be concerned by the lack of evidence, just like you said it. So, you know, the story here I think is a little bit interesting. Infant formulas some time ago didn't have uh, DHA in them. They didn't have arachidonic acid in them. And, you know, that was controversial for a while. And, you know, don't quote me on the year, but sometime around the 1990s, we started seeing a bunch of research comparing infant formulas without DHA to infant formulas with DHA, keeping in mind mother's milk always has DHA in it. And we see these cognitive benefits showing up in most studies, but not all studies in infants, right? And it was, it was kind of pragmatic and easy to study. The formulas don't have it. We'll add it in. We'll see what happens. You know, my take on the literature is it works really well in the premature infant, and it works moderately well in the term infant, probably for those reasons we were talking about. Um, and then, you know, there's been a lot of interest in, in DHA in adulthood, in cognition, in um, dementia, uh, major depression, and some of these other areas. 
and there's almost a complete lack of studies uh, looking at adolescence. But I think it's even worse than that. You know, the National Academies, which has since changed their name, got together, uh, David, you might remember the year, it was in the early 2000s, 2005-ish, I'll say ish, ish, that way I'm not wrong. Yeah. And and they tried to make requirements, right, for, for DHA and alpha linolenic acid. And, and they threw their hands up in the air and they said, we, we can't do this. And they put out adequate intakes, which are just kind of average population intakes, right? So it, it's been a big struggle. There's a handful of organizations that have come out and put some numbers out. But but technically, we don't have official recommendations for DHA in Canada. And, um, you know, if I were in charge of doing it, I would really struggle with the the younger kids, kind of the f three years old to 12 years old, because we have the least amount of studies there. And I think it's important because we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that these kids, you know, eat all white diets or do these have these strange behaviors and don't like fish and are grossed out by some of these things. So I think it's a it's a big gap we've got in the literature, and I'd like to see more people doing it. Great advice. For uh, young researchers out there, that's for sure. Yes, um, yes. But just building on the, the the notion of requirements and recommendations, uh, can you put some numbers to that? Yeah. So so well, the, the national academies, you know, they what they do is they take a a sample, a representative sample in the U.S. and they look at uh, how much they eat. And I think for the males, it was about. 1.6 grams a day of alpha linolenic acid, that plant precursor. And then they said um, about how much of that is coming from, you know, EPA or DHA. And they said about 10%. Um, and the funny thing is that they actually said zero to 10% in their writing. And this has caused some problems on how to interpret that. So you could say the AI is somewhere between zero to 160 milligrams for EPA and DHA. So you can count all that for DHA. You can count zero of that for DHA. So, so the number is essentially useless, right? It, it doesn't help us very much. And it's only an average intake. So is that an optimal intake or not? Um, societies have come out all over the place with numbers. Um, you know, most of them are in the you know, as low as maybe 400 milligrams a day to some of them just over a gram per day, depending if they're trying to zoom in on specific diseases or not. You know, some of the most, the higher numbers come from the triglyceride lowering field. So one of the things that EPA and DHA both do very well, it's very reproducible, is the lower your serum triglycerides. And you know, a little debate, but that probably plateaus around almost three grams a day. And it's really exciting because now we have drugs, uh, FDA-approved drugs, and I think one's approved by Health Canada uh, for lowering triglycerides. Uh, with um, and and you can get in a lot of trouble here if you call them uh, fish oil supplements because they're technically drugs. Uh, they're EPA ethyl esters, which is a slightly different form of EPA than you would find in naturally in foods. Um. That's a great point about uh, the form of uh, omega three. So, I just wanted your your um, your thoughts and comments about uh, supplement versus food sources of omega threes. What 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 do you uh, recommend? 
Yeah, so there's two ways of looking at that question. One is these little gritty, nitty gritty details about whether you should eat it as a tag, a free fatty acid, a phospholipid, etc. I don't get too excited by that literature because I'm still, you know, I remember my digestion lectures and most of these things get digested and reassembled and, and at least by the time they get to the brain, we don't see them that much. Then the debate is always, well, should you eat it in food or should you take a supplement, right? And I think they're, they're kind of tricky questions. I like food, but I don't know how food works, right? So if I, one of the things I do in one of my classes is I show a nice piece of tuna steak, rare, beautifully cut, and I show it on a slide, and I put some junk food around on the plate. And students automatically say, that doesn't look right. Like it's got crackers, it's got some gummy bears, and you know, whatever stuff around it, maybe a soft drink. When you eat a nice piece of fish, you tend to eat it with some vegetables, some salad. Uh, you know, some people would only consume a nice piece of fish with a glass of white wine. And this gets you into all these stories, you know, the French paradox. They say that the wine is, is what's uh, helping us. And then you often squirt some lemon on your fish and the antioxidant people would say, ah, that's what's beneficial. And so, you know, I throw my hands up in the air and say, well, in the epidemiology, I can't tell what is beneficial here. Uh, maybe it's one of these, maybe it's all of them. But the other thing is when you're eating fish, you're not eating certain foods, right? So it displaces, um, and I don't want to throw any foods under the bus, but maybe that fast food meal you were going to have with the, 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 with the exercise French fries and the, and the, the soft drink, right? You wouldn't have a, I wouldn't have a soft drink with a nice piece of fish. Um, so there's displacement issues and that's part of the issue with nutrition is really complicated. When you get into the supplements, you lose that displacement uh, problem. That's a problem from a research perspective, but it also may be a very useful tool nutritionally. And I always worry that people will say, well, I don't really like fish, so I'm going to have this terrible meal and I'm going to take my fish oil supplement and I'll be okay. And that one worries me a little because I don't think we have that evidence to suggest that all of the benefit from fish intake is from the omega-3s. Clearly, there's some benefit from the omega-3s. We talked about the, the infant development, which I think is pretty clear. But is everything we see in the observational literature solely from these omega-3s, or is it from these more complicated mechanisms? So, so I like to not be put on the spot here and say, I think fish is the best way to do it, and we should do some more research to see what the supplements can explain and what they can't explain from the observational literature. All right. Um, coming at that question in a slightly different way, um, there are individuals who um, uh, are not necessarily meat eaters. And just curious about your thoughts on what are options for those uh, who don't like fish or, uh, or are very much interested in a, a plant-based diet? Yeah, great, great way to trap me here, David. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a really important question, right? There's obviously a huge movement in plant-based diets, vegetarianism, and veganism. And so let's just step back a little bit. And I think there's a couple ways to look at these populations. One is you look at their DHA levels. Are, how are they? Well, they're, they're lower than, than fish eaters, okay? But not dramatically. They're lower. And so the question is, does that lower amount matter or not? You know, scientists answer, we need more research into that. But for a lot of the things that we think that fish oils do, um, 
and we look at those populations, they don't seem to have the risk factors, right? So, so vegetarian and vegans and plant-based diets aren't associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, something we're very excited for omega-3s. Uh, they're not associated with increased rates of cognitive decline, albeit the literature is a bit scarce. There's a small and emerging literature about mental health. I don't want to overstate it. It's small, it's emerging, we'll see where it is, but there's a couple studies you can find and a couple meta-analysis of these studies that aren't the highest quality studies suggesting that they might be at risk for mental health. Okay, so is this because this population is young, uh, they're ambitious and they're really worried about the environment and, and animal ethics and they see all these things going on and, and they're a special group of people that puts them at increased risk or are there dietary factors contributing to that. I don't know, but I think it should be a research priority. Uh, I'd like to see people test that out before I give an answer. So, so I have some concerns uh, about some of these populations. I have a lot of concerns with them uh, in development. So I'd be very concerned about somebody with a poor diet um, that's trying to, you know, uh, has, has twins uh, in utero and is trying to feed them and, and is not having a, a good intake. And you can have bad vegetarian diets, just like you can have bad non-vegetarian diets, right? So, so I, I think that's a, an interesting uh, little area we've got here. And there was a second part to your question, and I know I've forgotten it as I went off on this tangent. Oh, uh, no worries. I, maybe just to um, uh, add, add some uh, further detail and clarity around sources of plant-based omega-3s. I think that's uh, often a very interesting uh, question that gets asked. Uh, yeah, so so the EPA and DHA we're talking about are not in plants. And if I if you could, if you'd flash a little asterisk out right now that people could hear, that would be important. They're not typically in plants, and I say that because there are new technologies evolving. Right, um, you can you can make transgenic plants, uh, and you can have them raised in plants. That's controversial. Some people don't, some countries don't like transgenic products, but, but this is going to be an interesting thing because we can also, um, you know, the major source is fish and there's only so much fish in the ocean. And a lot of the fish we get is farm fish. And where do fish get it from? Algae, you know, eventually they get it from algae. So why does that matter? Well, if you feed your farm fish corn, they don't get a lot of omega-3s in them, right? And and this isn't labeled, right? So if you go into a, a market and you see organic whatever fish, I can't prove it, but that's a flag that that fish might have never eaten a fish in its life and might not have a lot of omega-3s. I've seen tilapia with almost no omega-3s on my GC, right? You're almost where your GC has a problem. They're so low. Um, so these plant-based sources aren't readily available for human consumption. They might one day, that's gonna be controversial, but there's algae out there. And I'm not a biologist and I'm not gonna try and defend whether algae is truly a plant or this or that, but generally it's accepted to be a plant source and it can be used out there. So I think that's neat, a neat tool. DHA, you, you, can, you, know, you can walk into any drugstore and you can probably buy it as a plant source. A little expensive, but it's out there. The majority of people on a plant-based diet get that 18 carbon precursor, that alpha linolenic acid, and then they require the liver to elongate it and put some more double bonds, we call it desaturate it, and secrete it as EPA or DHA. Um, and so the, the rates of that reaction 
are generally called low in the field. It's a fair point. Um, you know, people have worked on this and they've said they're about 1%. So if you're, if you're taking 1.6 grams, I shouldn't have did this in my head, you're going to get 16 milligrams a day. I hope I did that right. Um, converted, roughly speaking, if we use that number. And so the question then becomes to me, though, is it's not so much as the rate low, because 1% is low, it's just a low number. Is 16 milligrams enough? That's the question. It's, you know, it's a funny number. I'd like, I'd, I'd sleep better if it was 160, right? And then it'd be a little simpler in my head. 16 is more than the four that the brain needs, which is kind of good, but there's the rest of the body. So, so I, I'd like to do some more compartmentalization modeling on that number. And then the other thing I, I'm worried about is does that number go up when you don't eat DHA? You know, can you upregulate those enzymes? And we know in preclinical studies that if you give a rodent some DHA, it'll downregulate some of those enzymes in the liver and slow the step down. So the question is, can you upregulate it? Yes or no? And can you upregulate it enough? So I think there's a, you know, a few ways to look at this question um, in terms of the sources available, the plant-based sources, the new supplements coming in to the market. David, one of our friends uh, took a gene from uh, um, C. elegans, which is a nematode, a worm for people who aren't familiar with that, and he initially put it into a mouse, uh, and that gene is called FAT1, and it's, it's a really useful research tool because these mice can kind of make omega-3s, to keep it simple. But he also put it in a pig, right, uh, with the idea of maybe having some of these animals that only eat corn and aren't considered sources of DHA eventually being sources of DHA. And I, I don't know where that's went. It hasn't taken off. Transgenics are going to be a bit controversial, but people are working on these things and people have creative solutions to some of these problems. Oh, absolutely. I, there's definitely, um, uh, if you if you have time and creativity, there's there's opportunities. Um, but coming back to plant sources of, uh, of, uh, of omega-3s, uh, that would include uh, oils such as soy and flax, uh, avocados and walnuts. Are there any uh, other uh, plant-based foods that, that I've missed? Yeah, yeah. so, so th there's a couple ways to look at this. Which ones are the really rich sources? Flaxseed, chia seed, really rich sources. Not everybody eats flaxseed and chia seed, right? So then what are the most common sources in the diet? And, and soybean kind of shows up at the high level there and canola oil shows up at the high level there. Um, green leafy vegetables actually have a fair amount in it as well. So if, if it's a leaf and it's green, um, there's a lot there, which is actually kind of interesting because leaves are probably the most abundant thing on the planet, right? So it's, it's a really, the biologists talk about this in a little bit of a, a different tone. So yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's a handful of, of sources. And I wanted to say one more thing about the sources and it, it slipped my mind uh, right now. Maybe it'll come back to me. Sure, no problem. Um, so one last final question for this podcast. Um, and uh, we've talked about uh, different sources and, and uh, there's some discussion about uh, uh, what's an optimal level and we probably need to improve on that. So my last question for you was, what are your, what are your thoughts on how can we improve omega-3 intakes um, in kids and adults in all stages of the life cycle? Yeah, so I think we we need help here and i say that in terms of you know i'm a researcher uh, 
you know, we, we do similar types of research and I'm not that into behavioral change, but, but what I think we need is to, you know, get the message out there uh, like we've been doing, but I think we need to enable people with the tools, um, you know, uh, you walk into a grocery store, um, fish can be expensive right now, especially as, you know, with the, the recent changes in the prices and that's a problem. Well, there are some sources of fish that aren't quite as expensive and there, and there are emerging trends. Um, we were talking about a, this a bit offline, I think. I think canned fish sales are going through the roof right now. And, uh, you know, it's really easy, right? You can get a tin of sardines and an apple. Uh, you open up that tin, uh, grab a fork, uh, have it with your apple, throw it on some crackers and, and you're good to go. And it's, you know, this is a quick lunch. Uh, that you can bring out the door probably faster than anything else. So I think, you know, it's time for us to get some help with the behavioralists, maybe the chefs, um, you know, people interested in, in plant-based diets. How could, can they incorporate better sources of omega-3s into the into the plant-based diets and, and have a true multidisciplinary approach to this? Uh, because, you know, I wouldn't have guessed 10 years ago that sardine, tin sardines and tin mackerel uh, would be in uh, opening up boutique shops in, in uh, Times Square, New York. So uh, a little out of my field, but I think it points uh, to, to a need for a multidisciplinary disciplinary approach to answer these questions. I agree. I, I, I think that there's a tremendous opportunity for many others to be part of the conversation to, and to help uh, educate and and uh, that includes uh, folks who are uh, uh, have expertise in, in uh, food preparation, the chefs, and also rethinking about uh, uh, the types of foods that we have in our diet. And and uh, you've uh, I think uh, you've started a craze, Richard, <laughs> sardines and crackers. <laughs> yeah, uh, a very a very Portuguese type of uh, snack, I believe. Yeah, and and you know we're all a little busy, David, and and this is the kind of thing you can you can grab as you're walking uh, past uh, your shelf. It's it's about as quick as it you know as quick as the lunch as I can think of, right? And healthy. Yes. Well, thank you, Richard, uh, so much for uh, spending some time this afternoon on uh, this uh, podcast and sharing your expertise and knowledge and opinions on uh, this very. Uh, important topic of omega-3s and its contribution to uh, brain development and health. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, David. I really appreciate it. I've been enjoying the podcast. I, I, I have a little walk from the subway to my office. I've really been enjoying hearing true content, content experts uh, speak about this. So I hope you can keep it going. For sure. And, and, and very much a thank you to the Canadian Nutrition Society for supporting the Nutrition Conversations. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Nutrition Conversations. We hope that you found today's discussion informative and inspiring. If you're interested in hearing more about the latest research in nutrition and health, be sure to check out our website at cns-scn.ca-podcast for upcoming episodes. You can find us on various platforms including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Simply search for the Nutrition Conversations podcast on your favorite app and you'll have access to all our episodes in one place. We release new episodes at the end of each month, so mark your calendars and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.